0: Thank you so much for listening to the Four Generations podcast by Generations Church. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. In this episode of the podcast, Pastor John discusses the power of priority in his annual Making Room teaching series. Each week, we will encourage you to respond to Scripture and the Spirit. Let's get into this week's teaching thing is that we're going to get ready for our teaching for today. So we're continuing in the series of making room. John's going to continue to take us through that and we're going to read a verse today in Malachi. So if you've got your Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, you can pull that up and it's Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. And it says, "Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers." Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse.
1: Thank you. you Awesome. Yeah, as Charity just read, we are wrapping up this series. What better way to wrap up a series than wrap up the Old Testament with Malachi? We've been going through... I didn't even get a chuckle. It's fine. I'm tired. I don't even have coffee up here this morning. It's all good. We've been going through these minor prophets and not minor in the fact that their value is any less or the message isn't as impactful, just minor in the fact that it fits on a page and a half and you can read through it here in just a minute. The thing that I I love about these, not only are they short and sweet, but there is a deep message when a prophet, a messenger of God, is brought to a group of people brought to Israel to share a message in which God has. Last week, we read through the first half of this book, and really what we began to see is Israel, after a lot of time after they were exiled and destroyed by Babylon, they were brought back to their land. They had the opportunity to rebuild the temple, rebuild the gates, return to life. They began doing sacrifices again. Like Life was back to normal for Israel. But life wasn't necessarily good for Israel. They're in this moment of economic just kind of blandness. nothing nothing seemed to be booming or prosperous in the way in which they hoped it would. Or they really had a, their, uh, they had seen their ancestors experience. And so they began to question some of that and began to come out as them accusing God and even questioning, God's love for them, God's presence amongst them. And so you began to get some questions. And last week we dealt with uh, them even questioning if God loves them, Uh, God pointing out the sacrifices that they were making and how they were just giving God basically the scraps, the remains of animals and stuff in which they might have. And I'm going to assume we're going to switch real quick. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks, Tom. And we were talking about this, the sacrifices in which they were giving. They were basically giving the last of the remains of their livestock, of the things they had, the, the ones that they wouldn't even use for their weddings, their ceremonies. They wouldn't eat themselves or give to a friend were the ones that they were just throwing to the priests. And the priests were even accepting this and allowing this type of sacrifice to take place. And then we also talked about the unfaithfulness, one between the men who are leaving their wives for no reason and also pursuing idolatry of foreign gods. And we pick up today, I want us to jump right in, and we're going to be down in chapter 2, verse 17. And we got three more kind of arguments back and forth between Israel and God. And then Malachi kind of concludes everything and wraps up not only this story well, but really wraps up the story of the Old Testament. And so let's continue here. We're in uh, verse 17. It says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? See, I'm going to send my messenger And he will make clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And of offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. Verse 5. I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers, adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers, the widows and the fatherless and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. The fourth argument that comes about here is Israel questioning God's justice. In their eyes... Everyone that they see in the surrounding nations who is doing evil, who is oppressing, who are committing just these heinous acts, they're questioning, are they good in the sight of the Lord? Like, is, does God delight in them? Because they don't see God's justice. Rather, what, what they're seeing and what they're struggling with is almost this comparison. They're looking at these other nations and saying, why are they prosperous, Why is the economy good for them? Why do they have plenty of livestock? Why do they seem to be living good and comfy lives when they do evil things? To them, it appears that evil is abounding and that God is doing nothing. But that's not just all because Israel themselves are disappointed as they are hoping for a greater uh, prosperity, a prominence, a wealth amongst themselves since just because they returned to the promised land, the temple's rebuilt, the gate's put back up. They're doing the sacrifices. Israel is experiencing social and political oppression and economic scarcity. Things aren't going well for them, but they've, they've checked the boxes of what the ancestors have done in the past, so shouldn't they be experiencing enjoyment, wealth, safety, and comfort? Instead of Israel praising God for where they've come from, out of exile to where they are now, back in the promised land. Rather, they spend their time complaining about him. God why, are, God, why should we follow you when good things are happening to bad people? That's the question they're asking of him. And what they don't realize is that those who, who do evil things, they might see momentary gains, but they're gonna experience long-term pains. And whereas those who are are faithful, who who are doing the right things, who are following God, they they might experience short-term pains. It might not be good in the moment, but we might experience long-term gains. You, You will almost always be disappointed if you're only focused on what's in front of you in the moment. Circumstances, especially to us, those who are very critical, who are living it, see the flaws, see the brokenness, know of things that are not going well. And God's message to Israel is a comfort of hope for a future, of a quit looking at this moment and trust in the messenger that is to come, saying, I will prepare a way for you. I will prepare a way before him for the day of the Lord is coming. And he uses two images here, uh, depending on what translation you have. It's going to be a refining fire, or it might be a fuller soap. And they're both used as this image of this thoroughness in which they purify, in which they clean, but also severity. It's not, it's not easy. It's not safe. It, it's harm, like it is, but it is thorough in what it does to purify the, the substance in which it's used for. And so, this imagery that it's using is this purification of Israel, of the idolatry and injustice, the thoroughness of it, that on the day of the Lord, it is thoroughly going to be gone. That there, at the end of the day, the one true God will stand. And all those who believe in idolatry and worship other gods, it will be gone. And it's not an easy thing to uproot as we've, we've seen plenty of enough in Israel. Also, if we looked at ourselves and said, hey, is there anything that, that we struggle in comparison with God? Like, if we dig to it, there probably is. And the hope is that the faithful remnant remains and is restored. I'm going to pause here because we're going to get to it here. He kind of caps it off later down in 13, but I don't want to get ahead of it. Let's continue in the passage in verse 6. It says, because I, the Lord, have not changed, because I, the Lord, have not changed. Don't forget that. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. And yet they ask, God, how can we return to you? to you. So he asks a question. He says, well, a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. And they ask, well, how are we robbing you, God? And he says, by not making the payments of the 10th and the contributions, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full 10th into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house Test me in this way. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that in your fields, so that it so that it will not ruin the produce of your land. and your vine, in your in your vine, in your fields will not fall to produce fruit. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land. God's calling his people to return to him and they're asking how? And really what God is getting at, it can seem very like surface level, well, God's just telling them to just give money to him. But there's something deeper here and it goes back to the sacrifice in which we saw last week. He compares it to that. God confronts the selfishness of their sacrifice. Not just in the animal and the sacrifice in which they were giving there. The selfishness of, I don't want to give the best of what I have. I'll just give you whatever remains. The selfishness in their financial giving as well. They aren't doing it. It's something that they have just allowed to just be a non-existent thing. And a part of the covenant that they had established in their relationship with God included a thing called tithes and offering. Now these can sound like very churchy words, so let me break it down for you real quick. The tithe was to be one tenth of their annual income that was to be given to God, and the offering was anything that was above and beyond that one tenth amount. This money was used to support the temple and the priests who presided over the temple. but the people were neglecting this, and what you what you read when you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is that the temple that they had spent all this time rebuilding and that Haggai encouraged them so greatly to rebuild and bring back to its glory it's falling into disrepair because they brought it up and then they just kind of let it sit there and didn't care for it and are just letting it fall away into ruins their negligence it might have seemed justified to them because of the crop failures that they were dealing with they were dealing with the drought money wasn't there however these disasters weren't the cause of the nation's disobedience Rather, it was a cursed result. God wants to bless his people, but only in their faithfulness. God's blessing is available to them. God wants to work in and through his people. But Israel wants to be the exception to the rule. Rather, Israel wants God to punish the wickedness of the world and to bless them. But what sets Israel apart from from the rest of the world? Well, what's supposed to set Israel apart is their following of God, their trust in him, their faithfulness. And yet what you're seeing is Israel's not really being faithful to God. And so truly what sets them apart from the rest of the world? Why are they the ones who should be reaping the rewards and benefits of God working in them? And the rest of the world should perish when they are being in and of the same as them. They were giving to God their trash as a sacrifice and allowing his dwelling place to go to ruins. The root of the issue arises once again. They want God to do a great work through them and around them before a great work is done in them. They want to reap the rewards of God's love and his grace without being changed themselves. They want to get but not give. And so they actually get very little when they do that. It's ironic when you begin to flip this around in that the more that you give, you actually receive more. You're unable to receive when you have closed fists, unable to relinquish and give up what is yours or what is mine, what I have earned. When you realize nothing is truly our own, rather everything we have is God's and is from God. Himself. The beauty of generosity is the impact that it can make on those around you, on someone in your life. And when it does that, it also makes an impact on you yourself. The tithe was and is more than just another rule to follow and this long checklist of things that we think God wants us to do to earn His love, to earn right standing with Him. Rather, it's a priority that produces the heart of God within ourselves. The sacrifice of our money, and remember what we talked about with the sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't something that's easy. Rather, sacrifice requires you to give up something of value of to yourself. When we do that, it places God as the Lord of our life above all things. When we're able to sacrifice the things that mean things to us, shows that, God, you mean more than that. Often, where our money is, is where our heart is as well. The amount that you give will not make God love you more, and the amount that you give will not make God love you less. And it's not just another thing for you to do to get God to notice you, to get God to bless you, to, to benefit you, but it benefits the community as we share the resources that God has blessed us with to those who are in need and assistance. One of the things I love right now around generations is we see the the school drive table up front. And as we get close to uh, kind of passing along the rest of the stuff that's up there and some of the stuff that got passed um, picked up by the FCRC this week, we've had over uh, pretty close to $1,000 worth of school supplies that have been donated to fill the shelves in our local schools so the FCRC can pass it out to families and kids who are in need. We have families who give regularly, so that this facility isn't just a place for our Sunday gatherings where we get to gather and worship and honor God together as a community, as a family, but also throughout the week. We have people who who work and operate out of here. We have a music class that we get to bless that uh, teach music to young kids and have an opportunity to connect with them. We have someone within our community who hosts a self-defense class on Tuesday nights. We have community meetings that help plan Uh, the Parade of Bands, Santa Posse, and other things that benefit the community. We have gatherings of people that meet in here. I know in our fall, our Tuesday women's group use this as a a place to gather, to build relationships, and pray with one another. We have families who give so that we can host safe and fun events for kids in our community. When we pull off Halloween, when we do Easter, kids camp, it's not just a a thing for the community to just look at us, but it's to to be a place where we can love and pour into families and people and offer opportunities to build relationships and uh, break, um, build bridges where things are broken. We have families who give to support, uh, families who are in need of food. We've had some who've helped uh, with mattresses to uh, families who are in need, kids who are sleeping on floors, some that help with gas just so someone can get to work And I can list so much more, but when we talk about money, it's not that we want something from you, rather we want something for you. We want you to experience the joy and blessing of generous living when we make a priority, like we prioritize making a lasting impact rather than focusing on what we get out of it. As we continue in this passage, we're in verse 13. It says, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord, yet you ask, What have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and he listened. So a book of remembrance was written, before, was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The people of Israel conclude their their kind of last argument against God in this moment by stating, it's pointless to follow and serve God because wicked and prideful people succeed in life. And God, instead of repeating the same argument he had just a moment ago that we saw a few verses above, Rather, what God does is kind of shares a little bit of a story, kind of gives a bit of an image to his people. He gives this story of a faithful group of people who gather to honor and remember him. And God calls for these people to assemble a scroll, a scroll of remembrance, so that they can remember God's character and his promises that he has to his people. The gift that we get of the scriptures is that they point to the past to remind us of what God has done, to remind us of what he has done in order to inspire hope and faithfulness for the future. Continue on in chapter four. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies." He's adding on to what he shared earlier about this coming future, the coming day of the Lord. And the thing to notice and stop and pay attention to is, is often, get, you can see a lot of language that can come across as rather harsh, rather strong, rather fearful. But the day of the Lord's not a cause for a threat or fear. Rather, it's a cause for joy and hope for God's people. Let's finish off in verse 4. It says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statute and ordinances I commanded him at Oreb for all of Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi concludes the... Uh, not only just his book, but he inevitably inc- uh, kind of concludes the whole Old Testament here. And what we see and what we hear is almost this, this summarizing of how the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that tell the story of Israel and the prophets, act as a unified story that point to the future. Israel was redeemed by God, and then they betrayed through their rebellion and their hard hearts breaking the law of the Torah. They not only did it once. Let's be real. Israel did it time and time again. But the scriptures anticipate a new day when God will send a, a new Elijah who will restore God's people and heal their hearts. See, the scriptures and the stories that we get to we get to read and we get to ponder over and we get to pray through, it tells us the the truth of the human condition tells us the truth of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, of just how how apart from god evil is present. But it also announces the promise that one day god will send a messenger and he will show up personally to confront evil and to restore his people, bringing healing, justice. The message of Malachi is of God's unchanging love, despite our unfaithfulness, God's love cannot be bought, it cannot be earned, can't be lost, can't be increased, can't be decreased. God's love, remember what he said earlier, is unchanging. It is constant and consistent to all people. Now, Israel was to be a visual to the watching world of God's love. They were to be the embodiment. When people were to look at Israel, they were to see God's love. And yet, they weren't always the best at doing this. Let's just be real. They were unable to do that. And also, they struggled to pass it along to the next generations and to make that a priority for them. Rather, what they would pass along is their sin and their unfaithfulness. And yet, this never stopped God from being faithful to them. As God has promised to his people, he would make them a great nation and he would be with them. The scroll of remembrance, or the scriptures, becomes created due to Israel's inability to pass along God's character, to pass along the story of God and the promises. That God has not only for them, but for the generations to come. It is there to be a reminder of the past and a hope for the future in the midst of discouraging circumstances. Because the reality is, as what we saw right here, is that there's moments where it appears that good things are happening to bad people. And bad things happen to those who are good and faithful. The hope for them was the messenger to come, the one who would live out that love and share that story, the Messiah, Jesus, who who we have the hindsight, the foreknowledge to know, like, hey, that's what is to come right after this, who becomes the manifestation of God amongst us to be our atonement, to be the one to take that place, to take the punishment for sin and to show us God's love for people. And the beauty is, is that we don't have to be that Messiah. Nor could we be that Messiah. We are not the one to save or who can save. Perfection is not required of us. Rather, we are just to receive the love of God and allow it to transform our words, transform our actions, transform our lifestyles. Not only just for us. Remember, you don't do this for you. Rather, you do it to leave an impact where you are for those who are around you, and for the generations to come. We cannot control the circumstances in which we, end, we are in. We cannot control the people around us. We cannot control our legacy. We can't control what people say. There's a lot of things that we can't control even though we would like to control it, control them, control everything. A few of us are a little bit of control freaks? It's okay. It's relatable. We all want control. We want things to happen. We want things to be a certain way. We want to achieve certain things. What we can do is to choose to live in response to God's love. Hear that? To choose to respond to God's love. Not to earn God's love anymore. Not to increase his love for us. Not to, not to get it. We have it to receive it, to know it, to understand it. That is the choice that we get to make and to choose to embody that in our everyday life where we are so that it transforms our words, our actions, our lifestyles so that the watching world may begin to question and understand God's love not only for you but for them. And that is, when we, when we do that rightly and we're able to make this a priority, unlike Israel, if we take the chance, we take the opportunity to make this a priority, it becomes a priority and people begin to take notice those around us, but also those in our lives and the kids that are in that back room, they will begin to grasp onto it and they will grasp it and pass it along to their kids and the kids after that. That is what it looks like for generations to come to know who God is, to know his love is first, you have to understand that you are already loved. God has already done that for you. He did it through Jesus. You see it plainly as day. God loves. God came to us where we are. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be great. We don't, there's nothing we can do but receive it and allow it to change us from the inside out. And that was Israel's biggest struggle, is they constantly question, God, do you actually love us? Yes. Yes, he does. He will. He has. And he will, even to your future, even in the situation and circumstance that you're in, allow the community, those around you, to affirm that for you as the Spirit speaks through them and works through them. Allow a community to be the reminder of that and allow the scriptures to remind you of the past, of how God has set his promises and his character is established here in the future of seeing it fulfilled in fullness and in greatness and the hope and joy that we get to take in that despite what we might be going through, dealing with, and that's the beauty that we get to have as the family of God, is that we get to rightly point out God's love, not for me, but for you and those in our lives as they are dealing with things, as they become discouraged, as they might even become complacent, say, hey, God loves you. Allow God's love to shine through you to make an impact on those around you. Will you all pray with me this morning? Father, I'm always grateful for opportunities where you you just get to speak. God, I I pray that it is your spirit who is speaking through me, and it's not uh, my own personal desires, but God, speak to us, speak through us, speak in us. God, you, you love us. God, you are the true embodiment of love. Not anyone in this room, no one that we have seen in the past, God, we cannot truly understand the love that you have, what love is when we look at each other. God, we only rightly understand love when we see you fully. God, I pray that you show that to us in a tangible and physical way. Maybe it's through someone else. Maybe, God, you are gonna do a great work. God, do a great work in us so that you can do a great work through us, to the world around us. God, we want to see this happen for generations to come. It's not just a one and done, take care of us, but God, no, we want to see you transform the world. God, help us here, help us in Salmon Creek, Vancouver, the United States, the world, and for generations to come to know the love that you have, God. God, you love us, and we are so grateful for that. And it's in your son's name we pray.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to Pastor John. If we have been a blessing to you, please consider donating to our ministry at MyGenerations.Church. You can also visit MyGenerations.Church to stay up to date and stay connected with what's happening in and around our church community. Tune back in soon to hear what we are teaching and learning together as a community. I hope we have helped your faith become an everyday faith and live and love well because of Jesus.